Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, it's not a story. It is a, a fact of life in Canada. And it is a necessary fact of life. Yesterday was the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And that is so incredibly important to each and every person in this country. And today we're joined by, and we've spoken to him many times, is a leading young Canadian Indigenous chief, Chief Cadmus Delorme of Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan. And I said earlier, and I'll say it again with the chief on the line, he's an Indigenous chief and a leader. He's also a national leader in this country. Chief, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Good day, Roy. Thanks for welcoming me in. Um, what did yesterday contribute to the pursuit of truth and reconciliation in Saskatchewan and across this country? Uh, thank you, Roy. I could hear it in your opening comments at the uh, importance of the relationship between Indigenous people and Canada. Yesterday, personally, on Cows' First Nation in Treaty 4, Southeast Saskatchewan, uh, we, um, we mourned, uh, we celebrated, uh, we reflected on the exact site where the residential school on Cows' once stood from 1898 to 1996. Survivors uh, told their stories. Some came with tears, some came with humor, some just came with a lesson. And uh, we danced and uh, we sang and uh, it was a day where we heal. Uh, but across this country, uh, September 30th, I, I, really, I really felt the momentum. September 30th, Roy, is a, think of it like strategic planning. It's Canada's day to reflect, are we doing enough in our, in our planning to build a stronger relationship? And we shouldn't just do that on September 30th. September 30th, Roy, should be the day that we assess for the entire year what we're going to be doing one day at a time. Yes. So you've partly answered the question I was about to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Chief, because I, I don't think we're going to get caught in redundancy. I think there are issues that need to be spoken about, need to be raised and raised again, because they are so significantly important to the betterment of our complete society. So you're a young and dynamic leader with your finger on the national pulse, and you and I have spoken on air and off. So let me raise uh, this fundamental point. Politicians and governments, media headlines and stories, the classrooms of Canada, all supportive. This is the time for truth and reconciliation. This is of the greatest significance for a positive future for Canada and for the future of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So the question I have, Chief DeLorme, and I, I'm not, I hope I'm not heading into redundancy here, do you have confidence that people generally across Canada, non-Indigenous and Indigenous, are fully engaged and committed to pursuing truth and reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Roy, I'm a proud Canadian, I'm a proud Saskatchewanian, and most importantly, I'm a proud Indigenous person. I was raised by residential school survivors, and so a lot of my reconciliation internally uh, is to 
show residential school survivors, including my parents, what reconciliation could look like. From an Indigenous to Indigenous, I, I can see it. From an Indigenous to Canadian, I, I really feel the momentum and hope is now. And the unmarked graves that happened across this country, the validation that Kamloops, Mayorville, across this country, for Indigenous people, it, it was validation of that pain and frustration, tiredness uh, of trying to remain Indigenous in a country that is still somewhat oppressive to Indigenous people. But Roy, the most important part about reconciliation is the response Canadians have given. That shield is down. Many are admitting, I don't know much about the truth between Indigenous people and Canada. We're at a moment, Roy, right now where all of us got to reset our compass just a little bit. We got to think, what put us in this moment? What does our education system do that put us in this moment? The reality is, Roy, that our baby boomers, Generation X and Generation Y, they weren't taught the truth in the education system. Our millennials and Generation Z, they're being told the truth. The most important table for reconciliation right now in 2022 is the kitchen tables across this country. And we must make sure that reconciliation happens. But even to get there, we have to first understand and accept the truth. I do feel hopeful, Roy, that right now the truth is prevailing. The challenge remains is sometimes that ignorance of what we always thought or what we see sometimes in, in, in first person if, if, and sometimes how media will persuade something. I'm not, I'm not discrediting media. They got a, a, a very tough job. But are we as Canadians asking the right question? That is where... I feel doubt, maybe not doubt, Roy. Maybe that's where I feel challenged, but I do feel hopeful, Roy, in the overall of the future. Chief DeWarm, that uh, kitchen table analogy is so critically important because that's where I believe truth comes out in families. And, and even if you have friends sit down at a kitchen table, so much of substance can be said. Sometimes people get a little frustrated with one another during these conversations, but ultimately, I think it's to the betterment of the issue that's being discussed. So if, and the residential schools operated, some did, until 1996, if we sat down at the kitchen table with survivors of the residential schools, and we were to have a discussion, a conversation right now, Chief, what, what would we be hearing from the survivors of the residential schools? Would, would we be hearing from the survivors that they have a, a positive sense of what's going on in the country now? Because ultimately, ultimately, our responsibility is to all of us, but we are very responsible to the people who survived um, these residential schools. We're, we're responsible to them today. What would we be hearing from them? Roy, first off, I'm not a residential school survivor. I, I'm a spokesperson. I'm a chief. My parents uh, were survivors, my grandparents and great-grandparents. My response to your question, Roy, is going to be just from an observation of, of how I visit with survivors, what they tell me. So please, I'm not trying to say this is the answer for all. Right now across this country, we inherited this moment. Nobody created residential schools. Nobody created the Indian Act. Nobody created 60 Scoop today. But we inherited it. 
in a country where we share land, where we can be believers, where we can have one of the G7 countries that, that we live in, we have a responsibility for something we inherited. And for survivors, survivors are on different healing journeys across this country. There were 130 residential schools across this country. No school in this country should have a gravesite attached to it. That is the reality of how come this is so important. And to give you a one-minute response now from what a survivor may say, is I'll give you an example of my personal lineage on how this impacts me. My great-great-grandmother never attended a residential school. Her name was Gracie had strong indigenous worldview, very proud affirmation, physical touch. It, it was all there, Roy. My great-grandmother attended by force, by Canada law. And she went into horizontal survival mode. She didn't have vertical lineage opportunity. My grandma, Evelyn, went into horizontal survival mode, didn't have vertical lineage. My mother, horizontal survival mode. They didn't have vertical lineage option that we have today in a country that has good, good, gover good government, um, is a fairness for all as what this country stands for. Today, Roy, I never attended a residential school. My mother had to raise me, figuring out how to raise a young man, not having vertical lineage from her mom and grandma. And so today, Roy, across this country, our residential school survivors, they are healing. But they're a different, they have all right to have that pain and frustration, and anger and tiredness. As Canadians, we must stand beside them and let them know they're not alone on this journey. We will do better as Canadians because we inherited this. And that is the responsibility, Roy, that Canadians, let's not judge. Let's not say because residential schools were closed in 1996, get over it or, or change the chapter. No, Roy, we still need a lot of investment today so Indigenous people can get to parity as they always should have. Chief, uh, you talked about fairness in Canada, and I do believe we are a fair nation. I do believe we're far more fortunate to live here than in many other parts of the world. However, we also live in a country where there remain many First Nations communities devoid of reliable, safe, and a constant supply of something as fundamental and human rights oriented as clean drinking water, a requirement for health and life. I find that deeply disturbing. And so I can share with you do so many of my listeners who send emails. And I saw emails yesterday from listeners who pointed this out, who wanted to write something about uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, share something with me. And again and again, the issue of safe drinking water at First Nations communities was brought up. There's the, the bad in that it continues to exist, and the better as far as people just not willing to accept this any longer. Your thoughts, Chief? The, the essentials to, to be a dreamer in this country uh, include um, a, a good home fire, which include water. Nations uh, were placed a uh, hundred plus years ago, many today reserves, we call them, uh, by government um, forced to where they are. And today there's a fiduciary obligation because of our treaty relationship and relationship with Canada uh, and the Crown. And so 
we do need to do better. Uh, it, it is getting better, but I'm not trying to give cre- just credit, uh, but I'm just saying we need to do better. Uh, when we have healthy homes, when Indigenous can live where they want to live and not have to move j- just because they, they don't have that that healthy home or that uh, uh, to be a dreamer, uh, it, it really doesn't solve the, the healing journey we're on. And then just to more of the of the broader answer to your question, just beyond uh, water. My, my wife and I raise a five-year-old, uh, six-year-old now, uh, little human being. And, and she told me, Roy, she wants to be a pilot. And uh, my wife and I are going to do our best, Roy, to make her be a pilot. But here's the reality, Roy. We raise an Indigenous female, my wife and I. The toughest person to be in this country in 2022 is an Indigenous female. My wife and I have to try twice as hard to reap half the benefits that others who are raising a six-year-old female who's non-Indigenous in this country. My wife and I, Roy, are going to put that effort in. But I hope one day that when my kids have a little girl, my granddaughter, they don't have to try twice as hard to reap half the benefits. That's why it is so important that we do truth and reconciliation calls to action one day at a time because our kids rely on us to do something. Yeah, that is just so disturbing to hear that. I mean, it's disturbing that your daughter has to face that. It's deeply encouraging that you and your wife will do it, but your daughter should not have to face that. So let me ask you this. You have worked with Prime Minister Trudeau, former Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole, Premier Scott Moe, and I'm sure you'll be working with Pierre Polyev going forward. So what role, Chief Delorme, does the in-place political structure, federal and provincial, have in nurturing objectively the objectives of truth and reconciliation? That That is a fundamental question. And, you know, the first is, we, we elect our, our officials. Uh, municipal play a huge role as well. I just want to throw that in there. A lot of Indigenous people that don't live on the First Nation rely on, on city and, and RMs, and, and so th- that is just as important. But I'm going to give you an example of child welfare reform. I, I know our time is limited. I could uh, really explain things in a very uh, long-winded manner. Cows' First Nation uh, has taken child welfare reform in this country by, by charge. We're leading the, the way, and I say that in a very humble way. We told Prime Minister Trudeau and, and the Cabinet, we told Premier Mo and, and the Cabinet, we control our children in care, we said. Cows' does. We, we never relinquished our right. It's our right. And uh, we created our own law called the Mio Pima Tisuan Act, and create means striving for a better life. And Justin and, and Scott came to Cowes's. We, we signed this coordination agreement where they invest in our, our, our law and they got out of the way. In the first 16 months, Roy, we have no children in care on our reserve anymore. We knew what the families needed. We still have children in care off the reserve because we have jurisdiction off the reserve too. We're helping mothers go back to school. The kids are waking up watching their parents get do homework in the morning. We're helping grandparents with respite who are raising their grandkids. Like we are making fundamental growth right now with one area where governments, the toughest part I find governments have today is think of it like a vehicle. They have their hands on the steering wheel of the affairs of indigenous people 
Indigenous people are in the back seat yelling, saying like, we're here, let us put the hand on the steering wheel. That's the biggest challenge any government's going to have moving forward is how do they take their hand off the steering wheel and empower and where they sit in the car, the Indigenous people will tell them. That is the true nature of a relationship is Indigenous people do have the will, have the strength, have the education to control our destiny in many means. The United States will never, never, never recognize Russia's claims on Ukraine's sovereign territory. This so-called referenda was a sham, an absolute sham. The results were manufactured in Moscow. The true will of the Ukrainian people is evident every day as they sacrifice their lives to save their people and maintain the independence of their country. President Joe Biden, as increasingly the United States and Russia appear to be squaring off the developing story coming out of Ukraine. Russia, as you know, annexing Ukraine provinces, at least that's what Putin said. Meanwhile, a major Russian army unit was surrounded and cut off by the Ukrainian military. And they have now withdrawn from an area that Putin says is part of Russia. They were ready to be, I suppose, annihilated. And uh, like the Russian army has been taking it in on the chin for some time now uh, from the Ukrainians. So they've withdrawn. And the question becomes, and it's an uncomfortable question, but it's one that is raised across the world. And that is, would Putin engage battlefield nuclear weapons to defend what he says is the annexed Ukraine territory, the illegally annexed Ukraine territory. Uh, he says, Putin, he'd be willing to enter negotiations with Ukraine, but President Zelensky says, we'll do that as long as it's a new president of Russia. There's a lot on the plate here, a lot on the table. Alexander Sherba is with us, former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria, also ambassador at large following the 2014 Russian invasion. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Alexander, how are you? I'm very good. How are you, Roy? I'm well. Um, really an important day, an important week, significant week in, in this eight months of nonstop uh, fighting and uh, madness from, from Putin. So now he says he made the annexation announcement saying that four regions of Ukraine are now part of Russia after his so-called referenda. And he engaged in more talk about using nuclear weapons and urging Ukraine to engage in negotiations with him. Now we found out that earlier today the Russian military unit, which was encircled by a Ukrainian military, in, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Lyman or Lehman, a city in one of the Liman. regions, Liman, one of the regions yeah. Putin claims is part of Russia. So the Russians have withdrawn. Would you clarify for us, please, what's the situation on the ground today? Well, the situation on the front line uh, is uh, beneficial for Ukrainian troops. We are moving uh, further uh, uh, east. Uh, we are liberating uh, small villages and locations in the south in Kherson Oblast. Uh, there is, uh, Putin is sending more troops uh, to the Ukrainian-Belarusian border. So we are conducting um, military exercises in the north uh, to be sure that we are ready to welcome, uh, quote-unquote, those. Um, uh, so that, that's the situation. It was a very, very dark and depressing day yesterday just to see this maniac 
um, conduct within three days so-called referenda, see how violently it was, uh, uh, we used to say referendum, it was a rape uh, just within three days, going from flat to flat, apartment to apartment, uh, uh, and under uh, gun, uh, forcing people uh, to vote. Uh, there was this report about the guy who was uh, for three weeks uh, in their captivity uh, being um, um, tortured, and uh, he was released only under one condition, he goes to referendum and uh, uh, votes the right way. So it was a dark day, and dark day to see Russia like that, like a full-fledged fascist state. But uh, today is a new day, and uh, we are winning this war, and Putin can do nothing about it. It's a very important point to make, isn't it, that uh, the Russians are not in control, are not in full control of the four regions they now claim are part of Russia. Absolutely. It's just, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's not only sham, it's insane what they're doing there. It's just... Uh, even Putin um, two weeks ago was absolutely mm, reluctant to do that. And then all of a sudden clicks in his head and all of a sudden within three days, uh, these uh, um, guizlings from these territories, uh, these traitors uh, address him and he accepts, uh, he proclaims them uh, independent for independent nations, Kherson independent nations, Luhansk independent nation, so on and so forth, and uh, accept them within a uh, Russian state. And if you saw uh, the ceremony, you saw the faces of the people listening to Putin, it was nothing like the euphoria of the uh, Crimean seal. They understand how serious it is right now, and they are losing the war, and they are losing their, uh, the country that thought, they thought the Russian political elite thought was theirs, but this country um, can can fall apart. It, it, it's a real possibility right now. If Ukraine uh, moves to the one end, I'm very sure about that. Yeah, it's interesting because later on in the hour, we're going to be talking to the director of an organization known as the ARC. They are in Georgia, which is a former Soviet republic, of course, on the border with Russia, and hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled the country since the war began, and uh, the ARC is funded by Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who is, once was Russia's uh, wealthiest man, owned the second largest oil company in Russia, but was imprisoned by Putin and remains one of his most determined adversaries. We're going to find out just uh, what it's like at the borders as Russians try to escape uh, Putin and, and his version of Russia. One of the greatest concerns, Alexander, of course, is the potential for nuclear weapons. Putin brings this up each time he speaks internationally. And uh, the question about the potential unleashing of battlefield nuclear weapons hangs in the air. How concerned are you about that? Well, we understand that uh, it's a possibility both for uh, big cities and for uh, our troops on the front line. But militarily, uh, both would make uh, so little sense. Humanely, it would make so little sense because uh, it's not uh, 1945. Ukraine is not Japan. Ukraine is not losing the war. Everything, all it would do to Ukraine, it would make us even angrier. I spoke today with, with a guy who, who fought on the front line. Now he's back. And I asked him what would happen if uh, they do use a nuclear weapon. And he says, uh, it will make us only angrier right now. Uh, 
there is a possibility for uh, Ukrainian troops to reach the border with Russia and stop. But if people, if they do use these uh, nuclear weapons, there will be no stopping. We'll go to Russian territory, and there will be, there will be, uh, it will, it will be brutal. So uh, I hope Putin not uh, so detached from reality. He he must understand that uh, it's not 1945. We are not Japan. Yeah, if you think back to February the 24th when the invasion began. And very knowledgeable people, militarily, globally, were saying, well, Ukraine could fall in 72 hours. Kyiv could be really in Russian hands within 72 hours. And here we are uh, on the 1st of October, and you're quite logically talking about the potential for the Ukrainian army to be crossing the border into Russia if the Russians, if Putin unleashes battlefield nuclear weapons. That's how... Uh, how decisively the Ukrainian army is handling what was supposed to be one of the great militaries in the world, the Russian military. Alexander, we were talking about the mindset of Putin. We're trying to figure out what is going on in his head. So he's a child of the Soviet Union, was a KGB member, and clearly he longs for the return of the USSR. You've told us on the air that you grew up in the Soviet Union when Ukraine was forced to remain a member. Do you have an understanding of the mindset of Vladimir Putin? What's causing him, to the best of your understanding, to behave the way he is? Well, all these years, uh, he, uh, the world was giving him this, uh, you know, illusion, delusion that uh, he is this amazing, wonderful, uh, wise uh, politician, uh, everybody was wanted a piece of him. Everybody wanted to talk to him. His yeah, some some of his time, people forgave him. Forgave him the second uh, Chechnya war, amazingly cruel. The people forgave uh, countries, politicians forgave him what he did in Georgia, what he did in Crimea, and he was heading to a goal of his. Uh, that um, I, I think was was his goal for quite a while, namely recreation or recreating the Soviet Union, Soviet Union 2.0. And the key um, factor to that, uh, element to that, is, of course, Ukraine. He was heading to this war for years, and he was absolutely sure that Ukraine wouldn't, uh, would be a sitting duck, so to say. Um, now, uh, when all his plans went down the drain and the whole world uh, has seen that uh, the king is uh, naked and uh, the army uh, is incapable or uh, in disarray, uh, and what, what Russia really is, he's just, I think, more or less going with the flow. It's just not, maybe, maybe in this particular uh, uh, situation, he was going with the flow or with the will of um, uh, these so-called uh, presidents of these so-called, you know, independent republics, uh, because they saw that Russia uh, would abandon them like they abandoned uh, people in uh, Kherson Oblast, uh, traitors in Kherson Oblast. So uh, if he wouldn't, uh, hadn't done something drastic to encourage uh, the traitors on the uh, occupied territories, everything would fall apart within days. So he had to do something drastic, and he did. Yeah, he did. 
Now, he has, on the, in that speech on Wednesday, he said he wants to, wants Ukraine to come to the negotiating table and, uh, and, to, and, to, and to think reasonably. That's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. But the reply by President Zelensky was, yeah, we'll negotiate with Russia, but not with this guy. With a new president, negotiations only possible with a new Russian president. Ukraine is also asking for an accelerated NATO membership. What are the realistic chances, do you believe, for either happening? Number one, Putin to be disposed of from within the, the within Russia? And what's your sense about an accelerated acceptance of Ukraine by NATO? Well, uh, to your first question, uh, there is this, you know, uh, 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 the idea, uh, uh, maybe it's wishful thinking on our part, but uh, uh, Putin's uh, 70th birthday is coming. And people think that uh, the reason why he accelerated all these things because he wants to wrap things up here uh, and then to make the announcement akin to that that uh, Yeltsin did in the end of 1999. Uh, I done, I've done what I could uh, and uh, I'm tired and I, I uh, picked uh, a successor and uh, like like going away, you know. Uh, quite frankly, of course, it's uh, most likely it's just wishful thinking on our part. Uh, but uh, uh, President Zelensky saying this uh, publicly that we will speak only with. Uh, uh, any other guy as a president, but not this uh, insane, insane person. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Zelensky has some idea of what's happening next. Um, other than that, uh, if uh, Putin and it's most likely Putin remains in that power, uh, well, what's the point of negotiating with him, uh, who uh, invades you, who uh, takes away the territory, uh, occupies, and then? Um, says, let's talk about how we legalize what I uh, took away. It's just nonsense. We are not going to do that. Uh, um, only countries that lose wars do that, and we are not losing this war. And about the NATO membership, well, quite frankly, uh, it was a very, very good move on, 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 on Ukraine's part. Uh, it uh, had people like me for a couple of hours uh, very encouraged. We hope that uh, it was somehow it would be somehow endorsed by the NATO Secretary General. And then he came uh, and spoke uh, in his not very uh, exciting uh, and inspiring manner and said the usual thing, um, doors of the NATO are open to all European democracies, but right now we should be focusing on something else. And it was, of course, a turn on for for many people here. But I think... Uh, I think uh, the direction of Ukraine is, uh, is very clear. We are not making any compromises uh, with, with this aggressor, with the, this occupier, and therefore uh, we are moving uh, in direction of, of our real partners and our real partners in the, in the NATO. Everything is logical, putting on his way out, and uh, Ukraine, on, Ukraine is on her uh, way up and uh, NATO should support it. And I'm immensely thankful for Canada that supported us right away. About the date when it will happen, uh, de facto, we are already a NATO country. Uh, uh, when it will be de jure, uh, I don't know, but it, it, it will definitely happen. It's true, de facto. It seems like a de facto reality. 
the uh, the weapon systems that are being delivered by NATO nations to Ukraine are really of the most sophisticated variety now. And uh, Biden said, President Biden said uh, earlier in the week that as far as the United States is concerned, use those weapon systems any way you want. They have placed restrictions initially, but they're saying no longer. So we just have a, a few seconds uh, left, Alexander. How how significant and how important and how effective is it still to impose more sanctions on Russia? Well, absolutely uh, instrumental. First of all, uh, you should impose sanctions on Gazprom Bank and a couple of other banks, shut them down from SWIFT. That would be uh, uh, hurting. Plus, of course, you know, energy sanctions. Uh, uh, Europe should remain uh, on the course of, you know, imposing full and complete embargo on, on, on uh, gas and oil. That would be hurting, and that's very important. There's an organization known as the ARC. It's a support group for Russians who are fleeing their country. And between the 24th of February, when the Russian invasion began, and today, hundreds of thousands of Russians have escaped the country because of their anti-war position, and they condemn the military aggression against Ukraine. They also don't see much of a future in the country under Putin. Now, the co-founder and the key funder of the ARC is Mikhail Khodorkovsky, also known as MBK. He was once Russia's richest man, was imprisoned by Putin, and remains one of Putin's most determined adversaries. Anastasia Burakova is the director of the ARC. She joins us from Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, which borders on Russia. Anastasia, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to join us. Uh, can you share with us, please, how the ARC came to be and, and how is Mr. Khodorkovsky uh, associated, engaged with, with the organization? Thank you for the invitation. Uh, the ARC project was launched right after the beginning of the war. I'm a lawyer and human rights defender and many political activists and independent journalists have my telephone number. And when I received more than 100 questions and calls about relocation, I understood that uh, we need to help systematically. And I asked to my colleagues to help me with legal consultations. We created a special program, a bot for it. Uh, and the same, uh, at the same time, I asked the entire war committee launched by Mikhail Khodorkovsky and others to support the project. And we used their website. Committee members shared information about the project. And Mikhail Khodorkovsky gave funds to rent flats for co-living, uh, co-living flats. For the first time, so uh, that's how the art project was launched. So hundreds of thousands of Russians have gone to the border and got out and gotten out of the country. We've seen the lineups on the border between Russia and Finland, the, the lineups of the border, I believe, between Russia and Kazakhstan, and the lineups of the border between Russia and Georgia. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have exited since the war began. Many of them from what I understand, have very little in the way of a plan. They have no job, very little in the way of savings or security. Their bank cards are blocked. Finding an apartment outside of Russia is extremely difficult. And living day to day must be an extreme challenge. So why, and I gave my thoughts here, but you tell me yours. Why are so many Russian people willing to assume such a risk and uncertainty? 
So honestly, a lot of people face it with pressure because of their anti-war position immediately when the war began. So uh, I'm speaking not only about dissidents in usual meaning, but many ordinary people who were not involved in opposition organizations, political party structures, um, just, for example, signature anti-war petitions and lost their jobs, spent money for humanitarian aid for Ukrainian refugees and uh, police came to their houses. So more than uh, 16,000 people were detained because of participation in peaceful demonstrations during the first week uh, after the beginning of the war. Uh, so they have a risk to go to prison under the new criminal articles connected with critic of Russian military forces. And uh, at the same time, many Russians don't want to be associated with bloody Putin's aggression against Ukraine. Uh, so issues that, that, that they face uh, abroad uh, so are much less problematic compared with the war and suffering of Ukrainians. Yeah, we saw some stories the other day that uh, Russian soldiers had actually taken away children who were protesting with their parents against uh, the war, taking away children. When it comes to um, to people who are leaving, or let me ask you this, inside Russia, you said it's illegal to, to, uh, to challenge the war. What happens to journalists who openly are critical of Putin and the war, what happens to Russian journalists? Uh, so, as I told you before, uh, Russian parliament adopts new criminal articles against freedom of speech. And uh, you can go to prison, for example, for 10 years, just if, just if you call the war bar, bar, by its name. So, Russian officials uh, call it special military operation. Uh, more than 100 independent media were blocked after the beginning of the war and uh, all opposition political movements were closed. So I can compare it with Hitler's censorship in 1933. Oh. So if you call it anything other, if I'm a journalist in Russia, and I were to report on this, and I were to call, call it anything other than the special military operation, I could be arrested and sent to prison for 10 years. Yeah, so it, uh, there are two criminal articles about... Um, so about critic uh, of Russian military forces and uh, maximum punishment is uh, so ten years in prison, just if you call the war by its name. How difficult is it now? Maybe not so difficult a few months ago. I don't know. I'll ask you. How difficult is it for Russians to leave the country? Today, Now, we've seen video and photographs of long lineups at land border crossings. I mentioned earlier uh, Finland, Kazakhstan, and, uh, and Georgia. How difficult is it for Russians to get out? Uh, after the mobilization was announced by Putin, so hundreds of thousands of Russians tried to leave the country. And I can say that it's the second huge wave of immigration after the war was started. Uh, sometimes people spend, for example, three, five days in the lines to cross the land border with Kazakhstan, Georgia, Mongolia, Finland. Prices for flights increase in 20 times. Sometimes, for example, usual price for flight to Yerevan, Armenia is uh, 200 US dollars. But if you want to buy the ticket now to close the date, it can be 4,000 uh, US dollars or more. And they don't have that money. 
I mean, uh, so most people in yeah, Russia don't yeah, have a lot sure. of money. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people can't buy, for example, tickets to flights. That yeah, you still there? Do we still have uh, Anastasia? Okay, so we had a bit of a, a disconnect there. So, uh, we have talked a lot on this program about inflation, of course. We all talk about inflation because it hits each and every one of us. Interest rates, similarly. And you know, my definition of inflation has been, it's on the day that you go to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning and you cannot afford to fill up at either. Well, that's becoming an increasing reality, even though the price of gas has gone down. The price of food continues to skyrocket. And as our guest told us last weekend, the inflation rate on food has outpaced the general inflation rate for 13 consecutive months. Now, does this mean corporate greedflation at the grocery stores of Canada? Is it time for grocery chains to freeze prices of certain food staples? As is being done by some European chains, 78% of Canadians told Angus Reid polling they believe grocery stores are engaged in greedflation. We're joined by Professor Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and Professor at Dalhousie University. He testified Wednesday at the House of Commons Agriculture Committee. Sylvain, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Now, we talked last weekend some about the uh, the issue of greedflation. So what's the, what's the perspective that you bring? And what did you tell parliamentarians on the issue of food inflation? Actually, Roy, I testified before the Standing Committee of Finance, not not Agriculture, which is uh, it's a little detailed, but it's actually quite uh, significant because they actually look at inflation uh, from an economics perspective, obviously, and how uh, food prices are impacting everyone. So it's not just ag; it's it's the economy, and they were. They were interested in knowing more about, obviously, greedflation. If uh, why are prices going up, and and if we were able to explain some of it, and and my answer to them was yes, we can explain some of the inflation, but on all, uh, we do believe that uh, there is some. Um, unreasonable ikes uh, at the grocery store that we uh, that we can't explain uh, in some. With some verticals, really, uh, namely meat prices, I would say. Uh, so meat, bakery, uh, even dairy, there's some question marks there. But uh, but overall, uh, MPs were, were very much interested in knowing more about this and whether or not uh, Canadians are right. Canadians have every right to be skeptical and uh, and critical because, you know, there's there's a track record of of uh, of colluding uh, in in the industry with uh, with bread a few years ago, uh, but we actually haven't seen uh, we haven't found any evidence uh, that uh, that grocers, particularly grocers, are are abusing. Yeah, and grocers are saying um, the large change is saying it's just not happening. People who are accusing them of doing that are not aware of the realities and the dynamics of the, of the situation in the industry. But when you get, and you know this, when you get 78% of Canadians yeah. agreeing on anything, even though today is Saturday, that is really quite something because you cannot get Canadians to agree on anything. And those numbers generally, when you, when you have, when you have the dynamic right across the country, so that, that speaks to uh, that speaks to a common denominator issue here. And I'm 
concern for the grocery business, to be honest, their image. I mean, you, 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 there's not a day that goes by when grocers are completely destroyed on social media. Everyone is criticizing them. And, and I've actually, I've told, I've suggested to both the, the Retail Council of Canada and the Canadian uh, Independent Grocers uh, of Canada, the Federation representing independent grocers, I, I've been telling them, you, you got to do something. What is your strategy here? And the one thing that, uh, that we have proposed very openly was to freeze a voluntary freeze some prices for a period of time to just give a chance for consumers to breathe a little bit. And in fact, Canada is the only G7 country right now without one grocer doing that. Uh, we're seeing it all over the world. It's been happening for at least six months now, giving a break to consumers. And we're not talking about regulating prices. It's just a, it's more of a PR strategy, I guess, to show empathy towards the public. But right now, what I'm seeing is is an industry resisting to any sort of proposal that would show any empathy at all, which is a bit disappointing, to be honest, Roy. I, 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 think, I think grocers need a strategy because right now, most people think they're evil. They're not. But at the same time, they are interacting with struggling consumers as well. And, you know, the image that you establish today is the image that carries around you carry around with you tomorrow. So during difficult times, if you step up and you do what some of the other grocery chains are doing, as you say, in other G7 countries, and you say, look, we have these staples. And on these two or three staple foods, we're going to lower or at least freeze the price for a couple of months to give you an opportunity to just get caught up. I think that sort of move, and you just said that, I'm just rephrasing it, that sort of move can go a long way to establishing a positive relationship between the, between the grocery store and the consumer. My understanding, uh, while interacting with uh, with both the retail council and and the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocer, is that if they, I think they believe that if they actually freeze prices, they'll admit guilt, which I don't agree with. I don't think that if you show empathy, you're immediately admitting guilt that you were colluding, that you were increasing prices. I don't think prices. so either. I don't think so either. No. Exactly, and so that I think that's why they're hesitating, they're and they're and they're pushing back on the idea. So, uh, what's your sense? Uh, just remind us, please, what happened with the bread four years ago? So, <laughs> the bread price fixing scheme uh, was announced, I guess, back on December twentieth. 2017, that was five years ago, when Galen Weston stood in front of cameras, apologizing to the public, admitting that both Loblaws and uh, Weston Bakeries, which was owned by Loblaws as well at the time, uh, they admitted uh, of colluding for 14 years, uh, basically with other grocers. Now, there was an investigation going on uh, led by the Competition Bureau uh, they've actually looked into Metro and Sobeys and uh, Walmart and Costco, but other retailers, Giant Tiger was also included uh, because Loblaws at the time, five years ago, disclosed that everyone was, was in on this. But since then, Roy, everyone has denied it. So there's been an investigation and nobody has went to jail. Nobody's been fined yet. 
And so if consumers out there are skeptical and they think there's greedflation going on, they have every right <laughs> to believe that because we haven't really seen any penalties. All we got, we did get a $25 gift card. I hope you did get your gift card, Roy. Did you? No. You didn't. Oh, my goodness. You should. I think there, I, I'm not sure you can still apply, but basically they gave $25 right now, to all Canadians. I'm applying right now. You are? There you when go. I'm on the air with you. <laughs> there you go. Let's go shop at Loblaws together and see how what, what happens. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's, it's true. Look, you can, what you do today is going to be with you tomorrow. And uh, people remember when somebody steps forward and does something positive for them during difficult times. It's just it's the way we are. It's human nature. We want to say thank you. We also want to remember when it's not done. And I think the grocers have an opportunity here, as you clearly say. And when 78% of the people in this country believe that greedflation is taking place, that's not something you can just push into the corner and, uh, and try to ignore it. Not smart to do that. Not smart. The one advice I would give to grocers right now, since we're a week away from Thanksgiving, I would voluntarily freeze prices on turkey, cranberry sauce, potatoes, and pumpkin pie. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.